The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone, and a big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time today. I know it's not always easy to walk into a new space, and uh, appreciate that you're willing to do that. Steve and Mary are here as our program hosts. Connect with them if you have questions at the end or come up, introduce yourself. It's always nice to meet people who are showing up. And uh, we've been looking at this topic of emptiness. It's kind of a provocative topic in the whole Buddhist world and almost always misunderstood. In fact, with these more subtle concepts, the Buddha would say things like, no matter how one conceives it, what the teaching is pointing to, it's always different than how we conceive it. Right? So here we are, we're going to spend you know, 45 minutes talking about it, conceiving about it, right? And to remember that what we're talking about is not the words that we're saying together, right? It's the words are more a pointing. So this is why in Buddhist world we talk a lot. Probably the word we use more than any other word is practice. And it can feel a little, like makes us tight. But the reason we use that word practice a lot is we need to take the teachings we're hearing and we have to do something with them. We have to take these teachings, understand them well enough. We're still on the conceptual level. And then with that, like having reflected on the teachings, we use them as a way of investigating the direct experience. So if I gave you a Buddhist quiz right now, and I, one question, right? This is important, it's like midterm. (laughs) You know, and I asked, what is this? Right? And, okay, come up with the answer. You have five more seconds. What is this? And, you know, some of you would say, well, this is me, right? And you'd get a D, maybe C minus, <laughs> depending on your motivation. You know, and some of you would remember the answer you heard or the answer you thought you heard the teacher say, well, it's just the mind and body being known, right? But because you're just parroting, you know, you just think that that concept, that idea, it's just the body and mind being known, is the answer, you you know, you'd maybe get a C plus or something like that. And on and on like that. But what is this? Right? So there's a whole story in the Buddhist tradition, probably not based on historical fact, but interesting story nonetheless. Maybe some of you have heard it. They make a big deal of this story in the Zen tradition of and again, it's, it's not, probably not historically based, but the Buddha holding up a flower, right? As if to say, what is this? <laughs> and uh, one person in the back of the room, you know, that one person smiles, doesn't say anything, doesn't try to come up with a conceptual answer, but in an immediate and a direct way, the person in a sense, is resting in the knowing of what seeing is being known. And that that moment is empty of anything else. Right? So, 
That's the idea of these teachings on emptiness is to get us to understand that when the mind, the mind that knows, knows an experience, whether that's an experience of the body like sensation or an experience of hearing a sound or seeing a sight, thinking a thought, that in that moment of knowing, oh, this is being known, but you don't need those words, this is being known, but that's just a share that experience, right? Awareness, connecting with a, an experience, then wisdom in the mind can recognize that that's all there is. Something is being known in this moment. Now in the next moment, right, and the moments can happen very quickly, of course, then something else can be known, and something else could be known, and something else could be known. And of course, something being known is a very dynamic, changing even ephemeral process, something being known, something being known. And the wisdom that's right there is seeing that, and that's all there is, that this moment is empty of anything beyond something being known. So that's where we're going with these teachings. And that answer, no matter how we conceive of it, it's more about the teachings are all about pointing our mind, our direct experiencing in this way. In a way, we're weaning ourselves right, through the practice of mindful awareness, hearing these teachings, cultivating a stable present moment awareness. We're slowly, very slowly for most of us, weaning ourselves off of the dependence of the mind being attached to our thoughts about things our conceptions of things. And these it's not the problem isn't that we that we have thoughts about things. The problem is the dependence the mind has to the thoughts we have about things, the attachment, the identification with the thoughts. Right? This is often misunderstood in practice. Is this you know thinking we almost make a cult out of like experiences where there are fewer thoughts in the mind. Oh, I really want that quiet mind, that mind that doesn't have a lot of neurotic thought. And we can have a lot of neurotic thought about that mind that doesn't have any neurotic thought. And, you know, thinking it's special. I had a special experience. It has a joke kind of in the tradition that there's nothing... There's not, no better way to ruin a good retreat or a good sit than to have a moment of quiet, a moment of real peace. Because then we spend the rest of the sit, the rest of the retreat, the rest of our life thinking about that special moment we had. Oh, I remember. Right? You even see this here, you know, maybe at the reception, where people are still talking about a sit, one moment in a sit 10, 15, 20 years ago as opposed to what we'd like to talk to each other about, you know, in terms of our practices, how more and more in the sticky places of my life, I just have a lot more space, a lot more natural kindness, a lot more resilience and patience with what's hard to bear. Right? That would be a lot more trustworthy, like if at the reception, if someone came up and that's how they sort of were sharing about their practice, you know, oh, you've been here a while, so what do you experiences the fruit of your practice. And someone says, well, you know, I just seem to be, generally speaking, a little less reactive, a little bit more space, more perspective, not so fixed with my opinions, 
more naturally tender and kind, more certain about the limitations of my cultural conditioning and habit energies, right? As opposed to, well, 20 years ago I had this set and my mind got really quiet and things really opened up and it was so special. And so I built this altar to that moment in my house, you know. (laughs) And you could become part of my (laughs) religion of honoring that moment I had 20 years ago, right? That's just sort of what we do when we have special experiences because the ego goes nuts about that. And we think that the way forward is to keep going back to some experience. And of course, it's just neurotic and it makes us tight and makes other people not want to be around us. (laughs) Because part of our attachment to that moment is we want other people to think it's special because it makes it easier for us to think it was special. And it goes on and on like this. So this, these teachings on emptiness, it's very pragmatic, as I've been trying to mention the last four weeks as we've dug in. And by the way, there is a complimentary text if you want to read along and get Guy Armstrong's reflections on the Buddhist teachings on emptiness. He's written a book, just came out last winter, Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators. And we asked Moon Palace Books, a wonderful independent bookstore not too far from here, just south, about five or six blocks on Minnehaha Avenue and 33rd Street. And they'll offer it for 20% off for Common Ground folks if you want to pick one up. They have some, I think, in stock now. I was there about a week ago and they had some in stock. So um, in this book, you know, one of the ways the Buddha talks about and Guy brings up these teachings of the Buddha. There's two ways. One is just to see the moment as being one of these six sense gates being known. So we've talked about that the last couple of weeks. Hearing is being known. Seeing is being known. Touching, sensations being known. Smelling and tasting being known. So these are just the five physical senses being known. And then thinking's being known. And then I mentioned there's a slightly more sophisticated, subtle way of breaking down, studying your present moment experience, where we bring body together as one thing. So bodies being known, these five physical senses, the sensitivity to these five sense gates, right? Everybody, as long as the senses, the senses are working, right? As long as you have an eye that works, an ear that works, a nose and tongue that works, skin, you know, that's sensitive, that works, then you're going to be sensitive in these five ways and we call it body or form, right? The form of the body is sensitive in these five ways. And then there's the mind. And because the mind is more slippery, it's more subtle and it's more seductive in the sense we tend to take the mental activity more personally. I mean, we of course, we take the body activity personally too, but the mind much more so, right? Consciousness seems very personal. And perception, when I see and recognize experiences or hear and recognize a sound or feel a touch and recognize that touch, that perception, that activity of perceiving seems personal. The activity of a feeling that arises with each perception. Isn't that true? Every time we see something, even something somewhat neutral. If I look at that light on the wall over there, or you can look at one over here, 
you know, I perceive that. I, the mind recognizes, oh, that's a sconce, that's a light. And whether I want to or not, I have a feeling about that light. Now, something like that is going to be, relative for me, relatively neutral feeling tone. It's not strongly pleasant or unpleasant when I see that light. But some people in the room, when I see you, there's a strong, pleasant feeling because I recognize you, your friend, or something like that. So all the time, the mind is doing this activity of perceiving and feeling, having a feeling associated with each contact, each perception. And that's not personal. You can't turn that on and off, right? You can know, you can be aware of the perceiving activity. You can be aware that there's a feeling, but you can't make feeling go away or stop that activity of mind. It's just part of the nature of a mind is to recognize experience. Even a brand new experience you've never experienced before, you'll recognize it as something you don't know. Right? And there'll be a feeling tone associated with that. And then there'll be some mental activity. We call this mental formation, mental fabrication, mental constructions. And the most significant part of this catch-all category of the mind, it's sort of whatever's not consciousness or feeling tone or perception, we call mental formation. And that's everything that comes to the fore each time we have a sense experience. The mind does stuff because of contact, because there's a, uh, a perception and a feeling tone. And then there's mental activity. And the most significant part of that activity forms as an intention. You know, The mind is motivated to say something, to think something, to do something. And all of that activity of mind that leads to the intention, all that latent stuff that comes to the surface of the mind and is experienced somehow expresses itself and matures as an intention. We call that mental fabrication, mental construction, so the Pāliwara Sankara. So that's a big and an important category. And then we have consciousness. Now, it's not really quite right to say that each of these are sort of their own thing. It's kind of like different facets of the mind, I've been saying. And we need to learn to study this because we're trying to see that this activity of the mind can be known. It comes and goes, it's in process, but in a way it's not self, in an important way. Instead, we use words like, it's nature. It's the nature of this thing we call the mind or the activity of the mind, I prefer. It's just the nature of this thing we call the activity of the mind to perceive, to feel, to construct and mature into intention, to have intention, to do, to think, to talk, and for all of that to be known. That's consciousness just illuminates. That's its activity. You don't even know consciousness independently, right? We only know there's consciousness because things are being known. So we say, well, that thing that allows things to be known, that's consciousness. You know, that thing that allows recognition to happen, we call that perceiving. That thing or that activity that allows there to be a feeling tone, we call that feeling, right? Oh yeah, pleasantness is being known by consciousness or consciousness allows feeling to be known. So 
all we know really is that there's a mind here, right? There's a body, there's bodily activity, these five senses, there's contact, there's sensitivity in these five ways, and there's something that's not these five things. And, and that's what we call the activity of the mind. And when we stabilize awareness, we can kind of get a sense, yeah, okay, so there's part of this activity of mind is this perceiving, recognizing activity. And part of this activity of mind is there's always a feeling tone whenever there's contact, even contact of sight and sound and smell and taste and touch, there's always a feeling. Like when I touch the lectern, you know, there's sort of the direct, immediate experience of contact, right? The specific qualities of the touching, the smoothness, the warmth, that, those, that sort of thing. But I can't help it. Like I either like it or I don't like it or I'm neutral about it, right? I kind of like the smoothness. There's a little bit of pleasantness to touching the wood, but it's not strong, you know? So it's kind of neutral, maybe just a tiny bit pleasant. But mostly I would ignore some kind of contact like this because it's neutral. But I'm perceiving it, right? Just the touch itself because it's familiar. That's why perception is based on previous experiences we've had. That's how I know to recognize so many of you in the room because I've seen that particular shape, form, maybe even that sweater before. And so the mind sort of categorizes it. Oh yeah, that's, you know, that's Mary. That's whatever it is. And we can't help that. And so we're just learning. But the reason we're learning, breaking down the mind, is so we can observe that perception and feeling and all the mental formations, all the intentions and the knowing, the consciousness, that that is a natural process that happens naturally due to these many causes and conditions. Right? And the more we observe the mind, the activity of the mind, same with the activity of the body, which we talked more about in the previous weeks, the more we observe the mind in this way where we're seeing it as a natural process, you see it directly challenges the deep, deep, deep habit to take the activity of the mind personally. And when we misunderstand the mind in that way where we feel the activity of the mind, same with activity of the body, when we presume that it's personal, then attachment, getting tight and struggling with sense experience is the natural result of taking the activity of the mind personally. So what is it to have activity of body and mind without the grasping, without the craving, without the attachment, without taking it personally? That's the exploration. So when we sit, you know, we sit down relatively upright, relatively still. We do our form, what we call our formal practice, which by the way, most of you know this, is really the same as our daily life practice. It's just that circumstances are a little bit more conducive when we're doing the sitting practice, right? We're in a quiet space, the cell phone is off, the pets are in the other room, the roommates know to leave you alone or the people you live with know to leave you alone. You're not too hungry or too full not too sleepy or hyped out. So you pick the time of the day where your mind is relatively already relatively calm and stable. 
you do a few things ahead of time. You know, you might do some easy yoga or take a hot bath or anything that sort of helps you gear down to a more settled space, right? You wouldn't like have the most difficult business meeting of your day and then immediately want to go sit. I mean, you might if you were a skilled meditator, but if you're relatively new to practice, you just spend your formal sitting time thinking about the difficult meeting you just had. So it's good to sort of tap down, gear down, whatever that works, take a nice walk, walk your dog, quiet down a little bit, maybe do a savasana before your formal sitting time, and then do your formal sit. So you're already in a pretty good place. Awareness is already settled. Already, the mind is already willing to be intimate with the conditions of the present moment. Not afraid to be intimate, but willing to be intimate. So you settle down and you sit in a comfortable, upright way that supports wakefulness. You hold the body still. You have your eyes gazing down toward the floor or lightly closed in a way that doesn't create tension around the eyes. You check your body. You invite the places you hold tension. You say, honey, you don't need to be tight. You relax your shoulders. You relax your belly. You release the floor of the pelvis. Right? You feel you breathe in. You feel the whole body. You breathe out. You take up a present moment experience. So now body, whole body awareness as an anchor, a meditation object. And you realize that this activity of sensation being known can be trusted. So there can be an awareness, knowing a moment of sensation, an awareness, knowing a moment of sensation, and to start seeing that as a flow. Anybody get there today when I was giving that instruction? To really see that reality, that sensation, this whole body awareness, or it could be a specific sensation in the body, doesn't really matter if you're feeling the whole body as one sort of ocean of sensation or tuning into a particular sensation like the touching of the breath at the nostrils or the feeling of the movement of the abdomen with the in and out breath. But whatever you're tuning into as sensation, did you get to that place where sensation felt like a movement? Right? It's always one thing being known. And as soon as that one sensation, whole body or specific, is being known, there's another sensation and another. And even if it's like something that feels stable, like let's say you have some pain in your knee, but you're not averse to it. You really It's not intense or too much. And you're just present. The mind is just open. And if you look at, even though the sensation, in a relative sense, you might say, oh yeah, that pain is constant. But when you really look at it, it's a flow. There's a moment of the sensation being known and that disappears and then there's another moment of that sensation being known immediately disappearing in another moment. Now this is subtle, right? Because normally what happens is we feel the pain, it's being known, and then we don't notice it but the mind gets lost in the thought. And what is that thought? My knee hurts. Now that looks stable. The thought, my knee hurts, my knee hurts. My knee hurts. Even that's not stable, but because it's the same thought being repeated or some semblance of the same, it seems like things are actually stable. So we have to break through that habit 
of conceptualizing the experience of sensation, or even in a more subtle way, conceptualizing the experience of the mind being known, and to see that it's always something being known, something being known, something being known, and that process of something being known never ceases. It's always been that way, and this is the profound part, it's empty of anything but that something being known, something being known. Now this is something that the mind, the wisdom we say in the mind, that stable, discerning, present moment awareness, which is also just nature, we're cultivating this habit of reflectively knowing what's being known, right? What that begins to discern or understand is that there's always something being known and it's empty of anything else. Now, as an intellectual concept, that may not sound very profound, right? You might even intellectually see, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's always something being known and in any moment, whatever I might think is there besides that one thing being known, that's just another thing being known. It's either a thought being known or a feeling, emotion being known or a sound, a sight, a sensation being known. It's always something being known and that something being known is rapidly arising and disappearing so the next moment of something being known can be there. And boom, 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 boom. And when the mind, when the wisdom of the mind really sees this, generally in little glimpses over a long period of dedicated practice, initially most of what we're doing is just learning how to stabilize present moment awareness so we can do this more refined work. Because it takes a lot of stability. The present moment awareness can't be wavering. Like It's not enough to have one moment of present moment awareness. It has to be sustained to some degree before the wisdom begins to comprehend that's all there is. This is being known, this is being known. And what that does is it deeply undermines the habit, the natural habit, to be attached, to take things personally, to think that the activity of mind is me, or to think the activity of the body is me. And as that that habit of getting attached, being identified, begins to get weaker and weaker, then we start to feel the effects, which is more space, more love, less fear, less neurotic stickiness, less fixedness to our opinions and our views, less divisive, hateful, aggressive, closing down activity. We just, in all the different sticky, challenging places of our life, the heart, the mind is just more nimble, more light, more open, more skillful. But it's generally, for most people, a gradual shift. So, like the, someone once asked the Dalai Lama this question, like, you know, do you, what, exp- what effect from your practice do you notice? And he says, well, even with a good sit, I don't notice that much. But if I look back five years, certainly ten years, I really see that this mind, the way this mind is unfolding, is not the same as how it was unfolding five years ago or ten years ago. That I can note, notice a real difference. 
And that's why it takes a lot of faith because it's not like we kind of nail it in a moment and then we get the gold. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's like a, a subtle process. We can learn to trust, like it makes sense, it's logical. It makes sense that a human being would want to stabilize present moment awareness. That makes sense. If I'm going to be alive, it makes sense for the, the mind to be reflectively aware, honey, it's like this now, right? That just makes sense. And it makes sense that as we're cultivating that stability of awareness, to let the truth lead wherever it leads, like whatever the direct knowing whatever the fruit of paying attention in this stable way, wherever that leads, how could it be dangerous or inappropriate for the mind, the heart, to see things as they are? It isn't. So we just let it lead where it leads. And where it leads, if you want to trust people who've been doing it longer, you know, the Buddha and others, is it leads to this recognition that when it comes right down to it, what this is, to go back to the beginning, what this is, is something is being known. Not the concept, not that, those words, but the direct experience of consciousness illuminating sense contact. And that happens in a great rapidity because the mind that knows is, happens very quickly. There's always something being known. And again, the insight that's you can talk about in words, but it isn't the same, is that that moment is empty of everything else but something being known. And that removes getting that insight over and over again in little and bigger ways causes understanding to be transformed. The way the mind constructs meaning the way we tell ourselves stories about who I am and what's happening becomes radically transformed because the data upon which I'm telling myself stories and having conversations with you is based on seeing to some degree the underlying truth that this experience of being a human being, being alive is something being known and it's empty of anything else. And it just frees up. I don't have to be afraid. So if I don't have to be afraid and if I don't have to be neurotically needy, then you see how it really opens our lives up to being generous and kind and compassionate and doing the difficult stuff that needs to be done in the world. right? Because we're not neurotically finding, following our stories about, oh, poor me or that's somebody else's responsibility, or I didn't do that, you know, that's not my fault. We have all these fixed ideas about me and what my responsibility is and who I care about and who I don't care about, right? We have all these ideas that trap us, limit our lives, and cause tremendous suffering around us. How do we get outside of that? Well, The Buddha, his understanding was the way isn't to directly, immediately fix the world. The first step is to better understand what's going on here. We have to get rid of the, 
the tribalism, the sort of divisiveness in our own mind and heart, the way we separate, the way we turn things into good and bad, me and other, right here in our own mind and heart. And we do it because we misunderstand what's happening. And we misunderstand what's happening because the attention is superficial. And so we keep solving the problem in ways that actually create the problem, right? So when I feel afraid, I try to destroy the fear or hide from it. But that's what makes the world the way it is. Instead of when I feel the fear, I look at it and I realize it's just something being known. And then there's something being known and then there's something being known. And that process is nature, not self. It's natural. It arises due to causes and conditions. And if I see that over and over again, the heart lets go. It isn't, there isn't a person who has to put it down. There isn't a person who has to put down the load. The lightning up happens naturally when the mind sees things clearly. So I'll leave it here. We'll pick it up. Those who are reading along, we're finishing up, moving through chapter 4, and we'll be beginning chapter 5 soon. So if you're reading along, you might read those or reread those chapters if you're already further ahead. And the children will come in in a few minutes, but we have time for a couple comments or questions that people have. Go ahead, Emil. <clears throat> well, thanks for the very nice talk on emptiness again, Mark. I'm so glad we're dealing with this this book. But I, um, one of the big hurdles in my practice has been trying to understand things and to know how things work and why they work the way they do. So when this is languaged as knowing this smell, knowing this sight as something being known, that tends to get gears rolling up here regarding what is the perception, what is the feeling, what is the mm-hmm. mental formation around it. I feel much more comfortable just using language of uh, this is a sight being experienced and letting go of knowing that mm-hmm. because that is where the mental stuff comes in. So I'm wondering, do you feel that knowing and experiencing are being used kind of interchangeably in your discussion? Yeah, and I think we want to play with the words that we use so that we're not triggering neurotic activity. And eventually, of course, you know, when we're talking about we need words, but and you may in your own practice silently need to use words from time to time to redirect, to reestablish the momentum of the practice, but eventually we'll... The, the wisdom itself will know what it's doing, right? And it will, right? It's not about be reinforcing the dependence on thought because that always, thinking about things, proliferating in that way is always stressful. And eventually the mind, it may take a few rounds of the thinking before the mind realizes this is the path to stress, not the path to release. Thinking about what the Buddha said is only useful if it directs the mind to the direct experiencing, as Amos saying, or being with. Did you use the word being with the other night? Or was that somebody else? Don't recall. Yeah. That somebody else made a similar point, but they, they like being with sound, being with sensation, being with uh, thought. Yeah. And then Zinzalai. It needs to be quick, though, Zinzalai. The children mm-hmm. are here. Uh, so very briefly... Um, 
where do emotions fit into this like grief loss disorientation like where do they fit into this you know mind body perception like the way that you're analyzing the body and the mind like where does like so you can be kind of present in your body and in the sense experience and you could know but then when you have like emotion where does emotion fall within like the schema yeah Yeah, it's a bridge between the body and the mind. So when I bring to mind one of my parents' deaths, right, so I have a mental image, and that mental image, and immediately the mental formation, like a lot of memories with that particular parent will come up. So I've got the mental image, and then both the mental image and all the memories and any other mental formation will trigger a visceral feeling in the body, actual sensation, right? And then there's sort of an engine between the two where the sensations in the body will trigger more mental images, more thought about my parents and maybe other related places of grief. And then that will trigger more sensation. And so this is why emotion is a particularly um, seductive present moment experience because of the, it has its own engine. It can go forever. And even if I get exhausted with images and thoughts about my parents, the visceral feeling of grief that's been triggered in the body will bring up other experiences of losses or even potential losses. Oh, someday my partner will die or my cat will die, you know, or there are people dying. So it's like that proliferation, that dance between sensation triggering thought, thought triggering sensation. And that dance, generally, we call emotion. Yeah. Thanks for that. Good question. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.